Amen, Ken, thank you. Amanda, thank you once again. And the worship team, leading us in worship. Good morning, church. It is good to see you. This is the sacred gathering of the saints, uh, where God's people meet to worship Him, uh, to be uh, impacted by His Word, and through worship and prayer and our time together. If you're here today and you're not a, a part of the church, I just want to welcome you as well. Um, this is a time for you. Um, if you're looking for a church home, and in that you're trying to find the perfect church, um, I'll just go ahead and let you know uh, this is not it. Uh, this is not a perfect church, um, but we are a people who um, are learning day by day to bring our imperfections to the one and only perfect God, and He is working powerfully in our lives. And so if that is you and you're looking for that, just invite you to become a part of what God's doing here at Solid Rock Church. Um, it, is, it is exciting and humbling just to see what He is doing in our church um, despite us and without us. And then when He invites us to participate in that work, it's such a humbling honor. And so I just want to say all those things to you. Um, if you, uh, again, if you're here today and like you're bringing something into this space and in and, and the form of like brokenness or struggle or doubts, we want you to know that we're glad you're here. We don't need you to have it all together before you come in here and neither does God. And we want you to know this space is big enough for whatever you're bringing. Uh, his presence is big enough and, uh, and, and your brokenness is not going to overwhelm us. Uh, your doubts and questions aren't going to scare us. And so I just want to offer up that invitation to you today. And however that lands on you, I'm glad you're here. Uh, men, we have something exciting happening Wednesday night. We are relaunching men's ministry on Wednesday nights, this Wednesday night at 630. Uh, we relaunched ladies two weeks ago and had a fantastic showing. I think we had 41 ladies show up. It was a great time together, teaching, worship, fellowship. Men, it's our turn. This Wednesday night, 630 in this room um, because I'm the lead teaching pastor here I get to hear the the uh, the lessons ahead of time and I'm telling you it's going to be really really good I'm excited for you to get to hear uh, what God has for you this Wednesday night um, but here's the thing it won't be good if you don't show up so hope you'll be here with us this Wednesday man mark it on your calendar if you need to nudge your wife and let her know right now do that if you need to get out your phone and mark the date do that we want to see you here uh, Wednesday night at 6 30. All right so we are wrapping up uh, the series on the book of Malachi, and I want to offer up just some framework here um, to help us uh, land well. Um, for one, um, you'll notice that Ken read some verses from two different chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4. So the first five verses in chapter 3 go hand in hand with the last six chapters of chapter 4, which is the end of your Old Testament. Okay, and so what you're going to find though in those in these beautiful passages and prophecies is this forward looking from God towards the future. And in that, what you're going to find is that God is looking forward to the day that his son will come to earth. This is the first coming of Christ or the first advent. Um, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the first coming of Christ. But you're also going to find language that's pointing forward to a second coming of Christ which is the coming of Christ we're still longing for and waiting for today as his people. And, and so you're going to find both, both of those in these verses today. Um, I'm going to do my best to untangle them where it's necessary um, and leave them alone where it's not, because be it's beautiful to see how, um, just again, hand in glove, the first and the second coming of Christ are. Something else that's super helpful is to understand how your, your Bible is put together. So you have an Old Testament, okay? This is the Jewish Bible from Genesis to Malachi. 
And so as we wrap up the series today, we're essentially reading the last few words from God of the Old Testament. And what happens after the book of Malachi is that the, the, God goes into 400 years of silence with the people of Israel. We have no more descriptive or written interactions between God and his people. And that silence is broken at the birth of Jesus. And the, the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1 by saying this. This is, this is the genealogy and the story of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And that's how God breaks the silence of the 400 years. So what we're going to look at today is how does God go into that silence? Does he say anything helpful or significant? Or is this one of those moments where God folds his arms in frustration and turns his back on the people? Or like one of those moments where like somebody hangs up the phone on the other, you know, and it goes silent? Or does God leave them with something hopeful? Does he leave them with some indication of like why he's going silent and what is to come? We're going to start in uh, Malachi 3, verse 1. I'm going to read this, and then we'll start pulling this apart. So here's where this begins. This is, again, verse 1 of Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what we just read is a beautiful description of everything that the Old Testament is prophesying and promising for God's people. Something about what was just read out loud um, is, is the full culmination of everything that God is promising and everything that his people are supposed to be expecting and longing for and waiting for with patience. And so the first thing here is this, that I am going to send a messenger. Now, when you walk through the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll do this in just a minute with you, you're going to hear the promise of God being spoken and described in different ways. Okay, and so I'll just give you a few of those descriptions. In Genesis chapter 3, for example, this is right after the fall, right, right after Adam and Eve sinned right after the relationship and fellowship with God is broken and distorted and the relationship with one another is broken, the very next chapter when God comes to find them and, and help them locate themselves in the garden, he says to Eve, hey Eve, one day one of your descendants will trample upon the head of the serpent. Now this is fresh for Eve. I mean, she just had an interaction with the serpent. Her and Adam just were led astray in the previous chapter, and God's saying to her, hey, remember that serpent that fed you that lie? Here's the good news. One day, one of your descendants, your very seed, will trample on the head of that serpent. But then just a few chapters later in Genesis 12, God's reiterating this promise and this hope, and he comes to Abraham. He said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless your descendants that don't exist, by the way, your, your wife is going to have children. Your children are going to have children. I'm going to bless your descendants. And not only that, I'm going to bless all the nations through one of your descendants. Of course, in that moment, Abraham isn't connecting that to Genesis 3, that that descendant of Eve would also be a descendant of Abraham. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God comes to David, talks to him about his descendants. He says, hey, David, King David, there is, there is one of your descendants who's coming. He's on his way, and he's going to sit on your throne. You go, okay, great. 
I'm glad my legacy will pass on. But then he says something that's really unique. He says, David, but this descendant will be different. He will sit on the throne of my kingdom forever. And in that moment, I don't know that David knew that what he was talking about was not only the descendant of Abraham, but a descendant of Eve. Now, this descendant of Eve and Abraham and David is described many different ways. The prophet Isaiah talks about this child that would be born. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. We'll go, okay, that works great on a Christmas card. But in just reading that simply, we don't recognize the, the actual son that is given is the son of God. This descendant of Eve, this descendant of Abraham, this descendant of David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be, he'll, he will be led to the slaughter like a sheep. The weight of the government will be upon his shoulder. And by his chastisement, we will find peace. He's described in the Old Testament as the son of God, the son of man a king, a prophet, a messiah, a mediator, a counselor, a peacemaker, a kinsman, redeemer, a sacrificial lamb, and the one who would bear the sins of the world. Now, that's not what the people were expecting when Jesus came. The people were expecting a militant leader, a political leader, Somebody who had enough charisma to rise to the top. Somebody that had enough courage to face God's enemies in the form of the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Romans. They were looking for a human who would be courageous enough that the whole nation would come together and be willing to follow him into battle. And the hope was that this one militant political leader, this ruler of the people of God, would establish peace on earth by destroying all of their enemies. That's what they were looking for. Now, that's not what happens in Matthew chapter 1, is it? That's not what happens when God sends his son to be born in a manger. As a matter of fact, you can see hints of this in the Gospels. In um, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, what's really interesting is what happens after that. So just read a couple verses here from John 6. This is starting in 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, how he took just this little bit of fish and bread and he fed 5,000 people. When they saw that sign, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. This is him. This is the one we've been longing for. And then verse 15, perceiving they that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He could see into their hearts and he knew what they were longing for. They wanted a political, militant, human leader that would unite the nation and conquer God's enemies. That's not why Jesus came. So he quietly slips out and makes his way into solitude in the wilderness to be with the Father. And you can see the, the difference, if you will, between what the people wanted versus what God had planned. And so now here we are in the last few chapters of the Old Testament, and God is reminding his people what he has planned. And he says, here's how you'll know. I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way. So before the one, the descendant of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David, before that one comes, 
You'll know to be looking for him because I'm going to send a messenger out front to prepare the way. Now, we know, looking backwards, that this is John the Baptist. But in the moment, what, what was happening with the people is they were asking, who is this guy? Is this, is this the one? This guy, he preaches a, a big sermon. He talks a big talk. He's real rugged. Could, could this be the one? What's interesting is we'll look at a couple verses here that describe what was going on in Luke chapter 3. This is early on in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 2 says this, that during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. This is John the Baptist before he's got this you know, public platform. Came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's where he was. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then Luke tells us in verse 4, this is as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So clearly there's this connection between John the Baptist and this one that Malachi is prophesying that will prepare the way. In the Gospel of John, it's, we get more details on John the Baptist and his interaction with the people and with Jesus. And just read a couple of these verses. This is from John chapter 1, again, the beginning of John's Gospel. And this is the testimony of John, verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So he had already began preaching this baptism, baptism of repentance. He'd been baptizing people and proclaiming the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And so the religious leaders are like, hey, we need somebody to go check this guy out. Let's see if we've got anything to worry about here or if he's just going to be like a flash in the pan, you know, prophet who rises today and is gone tomorrow. And so they go out and ask him, who are you? In verse 20, he confessed, which means he told the truth. And he did not deny, but confessed. I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Quoting Isaiah 40. Chapter 40, verse 3, as the prophet Isaiah said. And what's beautiful in verse 29 is this. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. John the Baptist, preparing the way, looks up and sees Jesus. And he says this. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John is saying, hey, that's him. That's the one you were asking about. I have come to prepare the way for the Lord. And oh, by the way, that's him. Now here's what's so beautiful and profound about that. For everything that the Jews were expecting and anticipating, in this coming Messiah, what they completely did not expect is for God himself to show up, which is the second part of this prophecy. If we go back to Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send a messenger. He will prepare the way before me. 
I'm not sending B team first to prepare the way for the A team. I'm not sending John the Baptist first to prepare the way for a fantastic human leader. He's going to prepare the way for me. I am coming. I will be the descendant of Eve who tramples upon the head of the serpent. I will be the descendant of Abraham through whom all nations are blessed. I will be the descendant of David who sits on the throne forever. And this is why your New Testament starts with this simple verse. The testimony and genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. I myself am coming. And the Lord whom you seek. You know that longing and aching in your heart? The one in whom you seek will suddenly show up. He will come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's beautiful. Completely flipped upside down the perspective of the the Jewish nation. They thought we go to the temple and if we do enough tricks and run enough plays and get all the things right, then God will show up on the other side of the veil with his presence. And if God doesn't show up, we did something wrong, we go back and we try harder. And what, what, what God is prophesying is like, hey guys, I'm going to walk into the temple through the front door. I myself am coming. He in whom you are seeking, he in whom you delight will show up at the temple. What's beautiful about this is that in the Old Testament, God is speaking through men and women. He even speaks through a donkey, speaks through thunder. He speaks through all these various means, and we have the written word of God in the Old Testament as the Holy Spirit inspired these human authors to write down God's words. But what's going to change in the New Testament is God is no longer going to speak through prophets. God is going to show up and speak for himself. This is why the Gospel of John begins introducing us to Jesus by calling him the what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Whoa. God breaks his silence, not through a prophet, but through his Son. The book of Hebrews captures this. The first two verses of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, say this. Long ago, so this is a New Testament author looking backwards in time through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the birth of Jesus, looking at the Old Testament. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Malachi is one of them. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. And this is why Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming. Now the people of Israel did not expect God himself to show up. 
Again, they were looking for a human leader who could rally the nation, who they could get behind and push forward to make peace through the hands and the effort of men. Now, we're going to go into verse 2 now. Verse 2 is profound. It's beautiful. It's confusing. Verse 2 begins with these words. Who can endure? But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Now, that almost sounds like we need to brace ourselves for bad news. Who can endure when God shows up? Who can stand? Now, what's interesting is that the New Testament talks about how the Bible, which is, excuse me, the gospel, which is good news, is not embraced by everybody as good news. That some don't actually endure it. Some don't embrace it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this about the gospel itself. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, but if we preach Christ crucified, here's what some people are going to hear, it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Sometimes people trip over good news. So just because the prophet is warning, hey, not everybody's going to endure the message that the Son of God brings does not make it bad news. So then he begins to describe, what is this news? What is the thing that we're going to have a hard time enduring? This is beautiful. Look at verse 3. He will sit as a refiner. So just before that, the last part of verse 2 says that he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So the refiner's fire was this heat process by which you took things that were precious like silver and gold and you heated them up to burn away the impurities to make them pure to render them as pure so the refining process was in fact a good process it it made things better and burned away that which was not clean that which was false the fuller soap okay this would have been the type of soap that they used to like wash a sheep wash a lamb it's all nasty and matted and dirty and stained and and after washing this thing with fuller soap bright white you use it on garments baseball and softball moms it's like that that awesome soap it just takes all the stains out and you're like wow these pants are white again that was fuller soap okay so both of these processes were about refining making something perfect pure or clean hey that's good news But did you notice that he's not going to send somebody to be the soap or the fire? What's beautiful about this is he is like refiner's fire, and he is like fuller's soap, and he will sit as a refiner and do what? Purify. Make clean that which is not clean. Burn away that which is not pure. And then look at the rest of verse 3. He will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. Now, if you don't have a lot of um, history on the nation of Israel, you may not know what that reference means. So the Levites were the tribe um, that were responsible for leading out in worship. 
Okay, it was the Levites. They were entrusted with that. And so we know from the rest of Malachi that the worship of the nation of Israel has gone astray. It's distorted. It's diluted. They're not actually bringing worship. They're just, again, running the plays. They're doing things like God saying, hey, bring me your best lamb as an offering. And so they're going to the, the pen full of sheep and they're going, eh, how about we bring, this one's got a broken leg and I'm not sure if it's going to recover. Let's bring this one. And they were bringing in these sick and broken animals, attempting to offer them up as worship. And so, again, the problem wasn't that they weren't running the right plays or didn't have the right playbook. The problem was here. Their hearts were far from God. Now, here's the thing. You can't fix your heart. It wasn't enough for God to say to the Levites, guys, get it together. Get your hearts back on track. You, as a fallen human, cannot fix your heart. And so what Jesus is going to do is beautiful. And this description of him purifying the hearts of the sons of Levi is a forward-looking prophecy to future worshipers. Church, that's you. That's you, it's me. You don't have to walk into church with everything perfect and together and your offering of worship ready to give, free from blemish. You can bring what you have and offer it. And some days that's not much. And we can do that because God himself is going to purify our hearts. And then look at what happens. Then, verse 4, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. These worshipers didn't need more sheep to pick from. What they needed was a pure and clean heart. I want to read you just a little commentary I, I wrote down here around this. The calling of God for his people is to offer worship that is sincere, pure, and worthy. This requires a heart change that God's people can't pull off on their own. The good news is that God is going to change the hearts of his people when he arrives. Like a fuller's soap and like a refiner's fire. God is not standing there with his arms crossed demanding something better and withholding his presence until his people finally get it right. God is not saying, you know what, I'm going to take a break from all this worship business. You let me know when you get your act together. You let me know when you finally get what I'm trying to say and then I'll show up. It's not what God's saying. Love this. God is going to get it right for the people and then invite them to come to him by faith with whatever they have and that will be enough. You are enough. Your gift of worship is enough. Hear me on this, because Jesus is enough. That's your merit. If you're sitting here in this room going, yeah, my worship isn't as good as it could be, but it's better than his, 
I didn't see him sing. Better than hers. I saw her on Facebook this week. Hey, your worship isn't any better. What renders your worship is as acceptable is what Jesus has done. That's your only merit. The Son of God is going to come in this prophecy to earth to live a perfect life and to perfectly please the Father. Everything God demanded of you and me, Jesus pulls off. And he never, he never like swerves towards a boundary and has to be put back on track. He perfectly fulfills everything that God's law demanded of you. Then he took that perfection to the cross and laid his life down as a sacrifice and atonement to pay for our sins. And he rose again on the third day, defeating the only two enemies you can't defeat, sin and death. Toe-to-toe, pound-for-pound, they will beat you every time. But Jesus defeated them. And Jesus offers the invitation to you and me. Come to me by faith. Come to me by faith and you will have my grace that will forgive you and listen to this, and purify you, refine you. That's the good news of the gospel. God isn't telling the nation of Israel, hey, brace yourselves when I get there. Bad news is coming. He's saying, hey, brace yourselves because listen, not everybody is going to accept this good news. Some people are going to trip over it. Some people are going to reject it. Some are not going to be able to endure a religious system where God does all the work to purify the hearts of his people and then invites the people into a relationship based solely on the merit of grace by faith. That's the good news of the gospel. And some people aren't going to be able to endure that. Some people are going to trip and stumble over that. Some of you may be tripping over that right now. You're good with God sent his son. You're good with Jesus died on the cross. You're good with the resurrection. But when it comes to the merit of you being accepted by God, you still need to have a little, little bit of input. Just a, yeah, like, I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. But man, I've got something to offer here. Uh, I've still got something in my pocket to make God proud. And so you're going to struggle. You're going you're gonna to trip over the good news of the gospel where God's like, hey, hey, empty out your pockets. Nothing in there renders you as perfect or righteous. Jesus did that for you. So empty your pockets and bring it to me, and that'll be enough. You are enough because what Jesus did for you is enough. He is the refiner's fire. He is the fuller's soap. He's the only one who can cleanse and touch that stuff going on inside of here. Now in verse 5, chapter 3. We're going to begin to hear hints and see visions of a second coming and a judgment to come. Again, I think there's some application even in the first advent, but let's read this together. Verse 5 says this, Then, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, and then that applies to the next two, those who oppress the widow, those who oppress the fatherless, 
and against those who thrust aside or shove aside the sojourner or stranger and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And one of the misconceptions that we oftentimes have is just a really accurate understanding of how God can be a judge with wrath and also a kind and loving father. I would point you, first of all, to the example of Jesus. In the Gospels, when Jesus rebukes humans, he goes after religious leaders who are leading his people, God's people, astray. Like, that's where the harsh rebukes come from. It's not the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. Now, he embraces them with truth and kindness, but the harsh rebuke of, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, those are the religious leaders. Those are the ones that Jesus confronts with harshness. Now, here we get a list of people, don't we? And what's going to be interesting is if you, in a second, we're going to read from chapter 4, and these people are going to be described as the wicked. Okay? So there is a difference between, listen to this, Christ follower, being a Christian and still struggling with your flesh. If you are a Christian in this room who still struggles with the flesh, you are human. There is a difference between being, being that person, a child of God who's striving but not getting it quite yet, versus being the wicked. It is good news that God will one day bring the wicked to nothing. Those who seek to only do harm. Not those who are trying and kind of sometimes get it right. It's a misconception to think that once you are saved, the, now the expectation is you've got to get it right every time. If that's the expectation, hear me, church, we don't have a New Testament because we have no qualified New Testament authors. Peter, I mean, even after the church gets going and he's finally starting to get to a place where he's not putting his foot in his mouth, he's still struggling with being prejudiced and a bigot. The Apostle Paul is saying, like, Romans 7, hey, church, like, sometimes I don't get it right either. Like, there are things I want to do and I just don't do them. And there are things I really want to quit doing, but I haven't quit doing them yet. Your, your New Testament authors are men who are saved by grace through faith and don't have it right yet. But they are not the wicked. They're not the evildoers being described here. So what we're reading is a description of those who cause harm. Sorcerers. These are people who give other people false hope and lead them away from a relationship with God. Adulterers, those who break marriage covenants and, in, and encourage others to do the same, those who cause deep pain. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about like the one who like intentionally walks away from a covenant with another is like doing violence towards them. That's the way it's described. It's like they have on these garments of violence. Those who lie, those who oppress hired workers, those who oppress the widow, those who oppress the fatherless or the orphan, those who turn aside the stranger and the sojourner, and those who do not fear God. And in just a minute, God's going to call these people the arrogant evildoers. So now we're going to go to chapter 4. 
We're going to read the last few verses of your Old Testament. These are the last words that God will speak to the nation of Israel before he speaks himself when he comes to earth. Verse 1, Behold. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now I think we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. There's a day coming when God's enemies will be brought to nothing. The arrogant and the evildoers will be no more. And those who fear the Lord will be what? Healed and filled with joy. Did you hear that description? Like a calf being released from the stall? Like I don't know if you grew up around animals or on a farm or a ranch that's the imagery here and if you've ever had a calf penned up when you let them out to pasture it's a beautiful hilarious joy-filled experience right if you don't know that experience and you've got an inside dog you know how they get the zoomies before you let them out that's what's being described here the joy of the lord's people when he comes will be healing and a joy that's like a calf with zoomies being turned out to pasture. That's good news. That's kindness. And God's enemies will be brought to nothing. That's good news too. Evildoers and wicked who do harm intentionally who do harm for the sake of pain. It's good news that God would deal with the wicked. Make my point super simple. If you're here today and you are a parent, imagine the right response if you walked around a corner and saw somebody torturing one of your children. What would your response be? <laughs> I'm about to bring you to nothing. Okay, that's a human example. Bring it up into the holiness of God. Does God have a coming punishment? Yes, for the wicked. Not for his children who are fumbling through life trying to get it right. But for the arrogant, the evildoers, and the wicked. And then we're going to end in verse 4, and then verse 5 and 6. Verse 4 is the last command of your Old Testament. Okay? It's the command to remember something. When you look at the Bible and you read through it, do like a word search, the command to remember is one of the most frequent commands you will come across. Like over 300 times, closer to 500 times it shows up, and close to 300 of those times, it's an imperative command. Do this. Do what? God, I'm ready. Remember. Why? Because we're prone to forget. Right? We're prone to forget. 
We're prone to forget the most important things, the things we love the most, the things we're most committed to. We're prone to forget. And the command is remember. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Remember my law is the last command of the Old Testament. Now what's beautiful about this, if you haven't been with us for the whole Malachi series, I encourage you to go back, especially to the week we're talking about covenants. And we talked about how all of God's laws actually lead us to life. Like when you do them, good things happen. Like it turns out it's, it's good that you don't murder people. <laughs> Who knew, right? You know we need a commandment. For, we have a commandment for that. It turns out it's good for you and me to not have any other gods before him. It's good for you. It's good for me. It brings us to life. So the commandments of God that we're being commanded to remember are commandments and laws and statutes and rules that lead us to good stuff. The things our hearts are actually longing for. And if you remember that particular Sunday, we spent some time in Psalm 19. I'm going to encourage you to read Psalm 19 this week. To sit in it. To linger in it. To meditate on it even. Here's just an overview of what we read in, about God's law in Psalm 19. For the believer, God's law is perfect, reviving the soul. Just wonder how many souls are right now present that need to be revived. If that's you, the Bible's saying that the thing that's going to revive you is God's law. It's perfect. It will actually revive your soul. God's law is sure, like being sure-footed. It's sure, giving wisdom to those who lack it. I'm finally getting to the age where I realize I'm not as wise as I think I am. Now, I haven't, I haven't gotten to the, to the stage of life where I'm willing to admit that I've always been that way. I'm only at the stage where I'm willing to go, man, I wish I was as wise as I was last year. I mean, I, mean, I really knew what was going on. And, but the reality is, I need wisdom. You need wisdom. God's law is what? It is sure giving wisdom to those who lack it. God's law is right, causing the heart to rejoice God's law is pure. It enlightens the eyes. It's clean. It endures forever. And it's true. Altogether righteous. God is not commanding you into some arbitrary list of rules like the rules of a Catan board or Monopoly. He's actually giving us rules that are like guideposts to life, going, hey, if you'll follow these rules, they're going to lead you to what is good. Here's the good news, though. When you fall short, Jesus has already taken care of that between you and me. But still do the laws. Like, still head in the right direction. And so the last command of the Old Testament to you and to me is to remember the law. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And then these last two verses, I'm just going to read and let them speak now for themselves. Let God speak through the last two verses here of the Old Testament. Behold, 
I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus says the Lord. What I want to do now is I want to ask some questions to help you and I think about how to apply what we've read, what we've learned today to our everyday lives. So what does this mean? Israel was looking forward. It was about 400 years away from the coming of Jesus. Now we're sitting here waiting on the return and we don't know how long that's going to be. So what does this mean for you on Tuesday? What does this look like in your everyday life? So the first question that I'm going to ask is this. How do you personally experience and recognize the kindness of God in your life? Do you look for the kindness of God or are you always expecting punishment and disappointment? Are you expecting God to be kind to you on Tuesday? And so, if so, what are you doing to recognize that and experience the kindness of God? And listen to this, especially in times when it is revealed through hard times, like when it feels like you're going through a refining fire. So we didn't have time to unpack that. That beautiful, purifying, refining fire can also be painful, scary. So how do you personally experience and recognize the kindness of God in your life, especially in times when it feels like you're going through the refining fire? Do you even look for it? Is that the kind of God that you're worshiping here today? Second question is this. Malachi talks about um, restoration of relationships. That's kind of how it ends there. Turning hearts of fathers to children, children of fathers. How does this encourage you to move towards reconciliation in relationships in your life? So is there anyone who like, comes to mind, anybody that you want to pursue reconciliation with? Like, Did a name pop up for you? If so, are you willing to like write it down or get out your phone and send a text or Get your calendar out and say, no, I'm going to plan on pursuing this person. Is there anyone you want to pursue for reconciliation this week? So in the third question, think about today's passages. Malachi addresses God's judgment and his restoration. And I want you to think about this. How does this impact your understanding of God's kindness? Do you find it easier to focus on the concept of judgment or kindness? And then what does this reveal about your view of God? Can you hold both of those things as true at the same time? That God is both kind and a judge? And which, which one of those concepts do you apply to your life? Are you one of his children that sees himself or herself as one of the wicked, one of the evildoers? Fourth question is this, what are some practical ways you could extend God's kindness in your everyday life to those who are marginalized or oppressed? Did you hear that list? God's judgments against those who oppress the the hired worker, against the widow, against the orphan. You may not encounter all three of those people this week. You might encounter somebody who's being oppressed in a different way. But what are some practical ways you could extend God's kindness in your everyday life to someone 
who is being marginalized or oppressed. And then the final question is this, and I'll just say this, you don't have to be John the Baptist for God to work through you this week. How can you be a messenger this week? How can you be a messenger in your own community, your own neighborhood, your own workplace, preparing the way for others to experience God's kindness and love? How can you prepare the way for the Lord to work in somebody's life this week? I want to leave you with those questions and pray for you now and pray for us. Um, This series in Malachi has been so challenging and good. It's the first time I've ever preached or taught through Malachi. Um, So this is being applied to my own life in real time. Um, My hope and prayer for us, solid rockers, those of you who are like regulars, like I really want this, this truth from Malachi to land on us and refine us as we pay attention to God's people not getting it right and straying from God in worship, I would love to see us grow more and more into the kind of people that God is calling us to be. So I just want to say that as we wrap up the series, I'm going to pray for you, pray for us, pray for our church. If you've got anything going on in your life that um, you want somebody to pray for um, at the end of the service, especially if you're new here, we'll have prayer partners at the front. They're the people standing on the sides with like their back to the stage looking out. That's not, those, that's not the security guards. Those are, those are prayer partners. They're actually here. They volunteered to be here. They want to be here. It's like, pray for you. And so I, I hope you'll come grab a prayer partner. If the prayer partners are tied up, just so you know, they, they hang around after the service too, and you can hang on. Um, you can grab a, um, an elder or a pastor out in the commons area as well if you've got questions that have come up for you today. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond now in worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the book of Malachi, this sin. It's very heavy and transformative truth on one hand God it's heavy because when we read the the indictments of the nation of Israel God we have to think about ourselves we have to think about where we fall short where our worship goes astray where we mess up but then we're so thankful for the way that the book of Malachi ends pointing not just the nation of Israel but pointing us to Jesus the fuller soap, the refiner who comes to refine us. So Father, thank you for the hope we have in your son Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask now your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and stir us. Convict us. Stop us. Move us. Change us. Heal us. Comfort us. I pray your Holy Spirit would meet each one of us right now in the desperation of what we need. Lord Jesus, we now thank you for what you've given us through your death and resurrection. And if anybody here does not know you, my prayer is that they would make that step today. They would take that step to get to know you by faith through grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.